Hi, this is Herb Kressel, and welcome to a special Golden Oldies edition of the Radiology Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined uh, by uh, Dr. Sarah Donaldson, who is Professor of Radiation Oncology at Stanford University School of Medicine, and most importantly, a past president of the RSNA, who I had the pleasure of working with while I was editor. Welcome, Dr. Donaldson. Thanks, Herb. Well, I was delighted when you agreed to take on this task of identifying your golden oldies. Uh, and I wonder, how was it for you? How did you actually approach this? I imagine it would be daunting to try to sift through 100 years of uh, radiology literature looking for the gems. Well, Herbert was a lesson. Uh, first place, it was fun to do. And secondly, it was a luster, lesson in history. Because by going through those old radiology uh, papers from way back, I actually learned the history of radiation oncology and, and the classic papers that were published in radiology had messages that are still the classic uh, messages in teaching residents. And so, yeah, so the principles that were employed and the publications that related to radiation oncology that were published in radiology are still the principles that are undermined our entire practice wow. of radiation oncology wow. today. So, it was, so was fun. that a surprise, or were you expecting that? Well, um, no, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a surprise because I knew that radiology was the journal of the day, mm -hmm. and my mentors and the people that um, were writing the textbooks were the people who were writing those papers. And right. so, you know, I went through for name recognition <laughs> and topic recognition. I see. Well, actually, looking at the list that we finally generated, uh, I noticed that, uh, of course, Stanford's department has such an illustrious history, and three of the golden oldies were uh, authored by uh, uh, first authors who were in the Stanford department. I don't know if you worked with them or had experience with them. There was the, the Gladstein uh, paper on staging of Hodgkin's, uh, and then the uh, Kaplan, Henry Kaplan paper on the radical radiotherapy in Hodgkin's, which I gather from your comments <laughs> was a, uh, a head-turner. Uh, and then a Malcolm Bagshaw paper on uh, treating prostate cancer. So what That's was right. it like uh, working with those people? Well, Kaplan was the, the head of the department yes. when I became a resident and, um, and a well-recognized pioneer in mm -hmm radiology and radiation oncology, a wonderful chair um, who started the lymphoma program and showed that uh, malignant lymphoma could be uh, adequately treated and cured by using radiotherapy uh, for Hodgkin's disease and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The paper you're talking about was about Hodgkin's disease and Kaplan showed that um, many things about the biology of Hodgkin's disease but one was the contiguity of spread mm -hmm. and he hypothesized that if one could treat all the areas where the disease was located or might spread, they had a chance of curing this disease, which um, had been uniformly fatal until the development of the linear accelerator, which allowed large volumes to be treated to high doses. So it's a technological explosion to, that led to this. And, and Kaplan pioneered the, um, the Hodgkin's disease program at Stanford, uh, was a wonderful chair. We were scared of him, afraid of him. He but that did, was common with the chairs of that day. Everyone <laughs> lived in fear of their chairs. 
Um, Kaplan gave 110% to everything he did, and he expected 110% out of his trainees. And so um, one did not want to disappoint him. And so uh, actually what he showed with the use of radical radiotherapy and being able to treat uh, patients with Hodgkin's disease, he presented at an RSNA meeting um, in the early 60s, and it was noteworthy. It was... Um, it turned the treatment wow. for Hodgkin's disease. The subsequent paper by uh, Eli Gladstein evolved, um, and, and Eli and I were colleagues at the same time. We took our residency at the same time. And that had to do also with the uh, extent of disease because uh, the Gladstein paper showed that if one could confirm where the disease was located, using surgical staging, a staging laparotomy, including a splenectomy, then one could focus the radiation to those areas. But it was all dependent upon imaging. And the imaging uh, at that time was plain film, lymphography, a whole lung tomography, but before the era of CT and certainly before MR. What was he like as a resident? Was it, what was he like? What was he like, yeah. Well, um, Eli was... Um, <laughs> Eli was, his assignment was to, to support Dr. Kaplan. Yes. He was very energetic, um, outspoken, had strong opinions, yes. and, um, and became recognized as an excellent teacher and is still known as an excellent teacher because he still teaches under the same way as he was I, taught. I, I told you, I think I met him when I was a resident, and he struck me as like all business. I mean, he was a very serious, very focused uh, person. And uh, what about Dr. Bagshaw? Well, ba paper, Dr. Yeah. Bagshaw was the second chair of the department. Um, both trained as radiologists, both men um, chaired radiology departments, but both chose to do therapy as opposed to diagnosis. So they had section heads mm -hmm. who were diagnostic uh, radiologists who ran the diagnostic divisions, and they happened to be radiation oncologists. Dr. Bagshaw was a much different person than uh, Henry Kaplan, well-loved by everybody. Collegiality was the name of the game at Stanford mm -hmm. in those days. People really respected Malcolm, and he was fun, and everybody wanted to be on his oh, team. Great. They wanted to work in his department. They wanted to be just like him because he was so much fun. We were scared to death of Dr. Kaplan and called him Dr. <laughs> Kaplan. We loved Dr. Bagshaw and called him Mal. Okay. And so um, while Dr. Kaplan did lymphomas, Bagshaw took on another challenging area, and that was uh, GU abnormalities and uh, prostate cancer, right. which um, he hypothesized that if one could localize the prostate and treat the prostate with this new machine, the, the linear accelerator, he had a shot, and it was recognized that prostate cancer was radioresistant, so had to localize the gland. Um, well, and then deliver very focused radiation to the prostate gland. And it was before isocentric radiotherapy units were available. And so, and the first um, linear accelerator in the Western Hemisphere was built at Stanford. And so it was a wall, a ceiling mounted machine and a chair, and the chair rotated yeah. 360 degrees. Oh. So it wasn't the machine that yeah. rotated around the patient, it was the patient rotated in a circle and allowed uh, 360 degree radiation to a localized prostate gland. And he showed that one could control prostate cancer without using a surgical intervention, which was very, very big at the time. And then with lymphography and other ways of staging extent, he showed the lymph node involvement from prostate cancer. And then with the linear accelerator, we were able to treat larger volumes. So both men 
made huge contributions to the world of radiology and radiation right. oncology. Um, and both men relied on cancer biology and radiation physics mm. to use those um, aspects of science into the practice of radiation oncology. It was a thrill and a real privilege to train at Stanford yeah, with both of those sounds people. Like a, a great time to be there. Now, uh, two of the papers uh, in this uh, month are authored by women. Yes. Uh, one by Edith Quimby, who was a physicist on uh, a dosage chart, and the other, a paper by Eleanor Montague. And uh, I, I wonder, is this, uh, was radiation therapy particularly attractive to women? Was this kind of like an accident of nature that these two important papers by these uh, uh, leading uh, figures uh, show up on the list? Well, Edith Quimby um, was recognized as the radiation physicist in the early 1920s. I mean, she was a, a major leader in radiation physics, spent her uh, entire professional career in New York, and, um, and did pioneering work in physics, um, showing time, dose, and fractionation, and measurement, and had these elaborate tables called the Quimby tables, of which um, Every, every trainee referred to the Quin Quimby tables, and she was a tough taskmaster, yeah. to say the least. Um, and in those days, the examinations in diagnostic radiology, radiation oncology, or in radiology as a specialty yeah. before it was subspecialized, included physics. And one, um, one was terrified if they drew the shirt card and would, <laughs> might be interviewed by Edith Quimby. She was a tough taskmaster. But there's no danger in rereading the papers, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, the papers had a great lesson. Yeah, yeah. Had a great lesson. Then Eleanor Montague was a very, very special lady who uh, spent her professional career at the MD Anderson University of Texas, MD Anderson Hospital. And I knew Eleanor because as a trainee, I had spent some fellowship time wow. at the MD Anderson. And she was um, a wonderful role model to many of us, a wife of a physician, a mother, um, and a very effective professional woman who made, uh, who made a major impact on radiation oncology. Mm -hmm. She believed that radiotherapy, of, that breast cancer could be treated adequately with radiotherapy. That must have been a heretical idea at the time. It, it, this was the era of the Halstead mastectomy. Surgery was a recognized treatment for breast cancer, but some patients had far advanced disease and were not surgical candidates. And Eleanor showed that one could control radio th uh, breast cancer by using radiotherapy. The paper that uh, we refer to as in the golden oldies was a very important paper because she demonstrated the importance of dose and volume, which is a very important concept for radiation oncologists to understand. And she demonstrated that one uses very, very high doses of radiation to large areas of the body. One gets expected very, very bad complications. Mm -hmm. And so we, we gained a respect for dose and volume guidelines that stand true today. Wow. But Eleanor Montague was the person that demonstrated that Interesting. in yeah. the early 50s. Uh, I, I note, uh, sort of looking at the Golden Oldies list, particularly in, in radiation oncology, a lot of the papers sort of, as the two disciplines separated, we, although we still publish papers in radiation oncology, I don't think we're we're publishing the leading papers. There are, you know, the Red Journal and other very successful uh, venues. But now we're hearing more and more about an interest in the fields kind of uh, partnering more effectively once again. And uh, the last question I want to ask you is if we are doing the podcast for the 200th anniversary 
uh, of the RSNA. Do you think that we'll see more significant papers that are jointly dealing with uh, radiology and radiation oncology issues? I have no question that we will. If, if we're going to have a 200th uh, centennial, <laughs> I'm absolutely certain that we will be having podcasts on the integration of, of image-guided radiotherapy. Because, you see, it's, it's not any different than it was in those early days. Radiology was a discipline. There was a technological explosion that occurred uh, during and after the war. Um, radiology became uh, very diverse, and many subspecialties of radiology emerged. Uh, radiation oncology was one of those. And one could not learn everything there was to know about radiology, so the subspecialization of radiology evolved. Radiation oncology became uh, recognized as a, as a field that required three and now four years of training to be able to use that modality appropriately. And so it's, it was natural that there were subspecialty uh, societies and subspecialty interests, just like interventional and ultrasound and many, many right. aspects of radiology. But the fact is, today, radiotherapy is precision-driven, precision-oriented, and it's technologically driven. And we're not trained in diagnostic imaging. We're not trained in image interpretation. So radiation oncologists have learned that if they, if they partner with diagnostic radiologists, and we, we then have a win-win situation because we need radiologists to tell us how to, uh, how to image the cancer, how to interpret the, the, can the images, where the cancer is located, and what, how it's functioning, and where it might spread, and what its molecular characteristics are, and its heterogeneity, and its movement, <laughs> and its blood supply. And when we know that, then we're quite good at being able to bring in beams and treat a localized area to high doses and ablate bad tissue. But we cannot do it alone. We have to do it as a package. We have to do it as a partnership. So, and that's not going to go away. And in fact, the trend in radiology is going to be more and more driven by diseases and parts of the body in teams of physicians. Sure. And that's exactly the way we practice now. And radiologists are at the very center of those teams. And their best friends are radiation oncologists because we do it together. Great. Well, Dr. Donaldson, I want to thank you for your work in the Golden Oldies and for sharing some of your insights with us today. Thanks My pleasure. very much. Thank you, Herb.